This is the Education Gadfly Show. We are being paid <laughs> to endorse DCPS. Is this what we're money has exchanged. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, the Al Gore of Education Reform, David Osborne. David, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. I will explain the Al Gore comment uh, to you, Alyssa. <laughs> Alyssa Schwenk joining us as well. Hey, Mike. Uh, you beat me to the punch there. So, you know, when some people think about Al Al Gore, you might think, okay, vice president, yes. you might think ran for president, yes. maybe you think about global warming. Yes. I think about reinventing government. Uh, that, you know, David, uh, who wrote this phenomenal book that many of us uh, of a certain age, you know, are still groupies called Reinventing uh, Government uh, many years ago. And Al Gore picked it up and he had this whole Reinventing Government Commission that That's he worked on cool. as vice president. And I worked for him. And you worked for him and tried yeah. to reinvent government and including what, what was that law that I had to deal with when I was in the, uh, the Department of Education that you had to set goals and have strategic plans. Oh, yeah, and- the uh, Government Performance and Results Act. Yes, yes, <laughs> had exactly. Withered in Congress for a number of uh, years until Gore and Clinton yes. said, This is good, do this. Yes, and I, I got in a lot of trouble because our first year we decided not to do a uh, report on how we were doing on our strategic plan because they were all the old goals from the Clinton administration and we were new with George W. Bush and we had no child left behind so we just said it didn't make sense for us to report against their stuff and anyways we got pulled into <laughs> uh, the offices of the uh, what was it the the uh, uh, accountability office GAO? The GAO. GAO. Yeah. yeah I got to go into the director's office it was very scary he had uh, swords up on the walls from his military time there and I got uh, completely reamed out uh, for this <laughs> anyways uh, so this is all a digression to say <laughs> alright it's time for Ed Reform Update All right, David, uh, you know, is is now not just reinventing government. He is reinventing America's schools because that is the new book that he has out this week all about, uh, well, the, the subtitle, Creating a 21st Century Education System. David's also the director of the Reinventing America's Schools Project at the Progressive Policy Institute. So excited to have you here with us, David. Yeah, it's great to be here. You're uh, doing a ton this week uh, promoting this book. You got a big yep. National Press Club event on Wednesday, and uh, you doing some press as well? Yes. Today's the kickoff. Okay. This is the third interview today. All right. Very exciting. <laughs> it is very exciting. Now, this is going to be a, this book is a big deal. You can see a lot of a lot of some some excerpts from it on the 74, and uh, you're going to be all over the place. So, David, uh, in a nutshell, tell us: is it fair to say this argument is basically an argument in support of charter schools? Yes. Tell me if there's yes. more nuance to it than that. <laughs> well, there's a little more nuance. My argument is that our traditional public schools aren't working very well because we're using a hundred year old model. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're using hierarchical centralized bureaucracies that yeah. disempower principals and teachers and standardized schools rather than sort of meeting different kids where they are and where they need. Yeah. Um, and that in chart in the charter sector, by the seat of our pants, we're inventing a new way to do it. Yeah. Um, and that we should quit thinking about charters as this innovation around the edges of the system yeah. and realize mm-hmm. that it's a better way to organize the system. Right. And in fact, the cities that have embraced charters and made them a core strategy are the fastest improving in the country, like right. New Orleans, Washington, D.C., Denver, yeah. for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but my argument is not we should call every school a charter. We can call them whatever we want. Let's yeah. treat them like charters. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so, but, but it is fair to say you would say every school a charter school 
certainly in the cities, but also in, in the suburbs, the small towns, everywhere? Uh, in, in your ideal eventually, world? Eventually, yeah. I would say that. Today, right. let's just stick with the cities. I mean, let's be real. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and Fair then enough. expand outward. All right. So, so David, let, let me push you on this part. I, I have gotten a chance to look at the book, and it is great and goes into depth on a number of the cities that you mentioned, what they're doing. Uh, you know, for folks in education reform, a lot of this is going to be familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, what's happening in New Orleans, uh, what's happening in Washington, D.C., uh, maybe what you get into in Indianapolis will be newer to some folks, Denver. Uh, I think you're trying to reach beyond the ed reform world here, right? You're trying Absolutely. to get, get this uh, into the world of, you know, engaged readers who care about, uh, you know, policy and, mm-hmm. and the country and help them mm-hmm. understand this better. But but let me uh, push on this idea that every school should be organized like a charter school. I mean, you know, certainly there are people within the charter movement who have made this case before. I think of yep. Andy Smerick, our, our one-time colleague. Uh, yes, read a report for us, I think, yeah. on that topic. Yeah, exactly, yes. his book, yeah, which Andy's is somewhat great. similar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but, the, uh, but there are some systems out there that you could point to that you could say do a pretty good job, even though they haven't embraced this charter model, that they say, hey, hey, we run a large system and we want it to be a seamless system where even if, say, kids move around, which happens a lot if you're poor, anywhere you go, you're going to end up in a school where the curriculum uh, is the same and high quality and, and where there's good things happening. And, and, if, uh, and then we're sitting in a place that has one of these systems called, you know, D.C. public schools mm-hmm. that right. under Michelle Ree and Kaya Henderson, uh, they, they did not embrace a charter uh, strategy or charter, like they said, we're going to fix this big dysfunctional school system and make it work. And, you know, new report out just today, uh, independent report saying, looks like they've succeeded. You mm-hmm. know, kids are learning a lot more. Things are working. The curriculum is very good. Teaching and learning looks better. So <laughs> are you making a mistake in trying to make this argument that it can't be done uh, in in a more uh, centralized system, I don't think so because um, look, if you look at the data on DC public schools, um, and my hats off to them for ten years, they have done the most profound reform of probably mm-hmm. any urban district in the country. Yeah, they've broken a lot of eggs, they've taken a lot of risks, mm-hmm. they've done a lot of good things, mm-hmm. and yet go to the poorest wards in Washington D.C. and their schools are failing. And they can't touch the charters. Yeah, I, I don't DC know. DC is though. if if you dig into this new into the new numbers, you look at the park numbers. I don't know if that is the case anymore. And of course, it is still question. the case. You can take you can look at graphs showing park scores. Yeah. for Ward Seven and Eight, right? And you will see dominance by the charters and failure by DCPS. And and the question is always: Is that does that represent the school quality, or does that mean? That DCPS is still serving the toughest kids, right? That uh, which is not to say that the charters don't serve a lot of poor kids; they clearly do. But that the very poorest kids, with the in the most dysfunctional families and perhaps the greatest needs, have stayed in the traditional system. So we just got to be at least careful about those apples to apples comparisons. But there there right? are some charters that have those kids, yeah, that yeah. succeed with them, right, right. right. And there yeah. are hardly any. DCPS schools that have those kids and succeed with them. That uh, Alyssa? I mean, as the the person in the room who has taught in a DC public school, a charter school in DC, I would a crappy one at that. The test scores. Are, <laughs> I was not at a KIPP, um, and I think it's challenging to compare, you know, one school or a, a network of schools that has maybe eight to ten schools right. with the entire population of DCPS. That being said, pushing back against Mike, yeah. I do think that DCPS has embraced some of the reforms that we could 
say, you know, are indicative of having a charter-like mentality, if not the charter-like delivery model, where, you know, the entire city of D.C., you can be a part of the school lottery, you can choose your school, there's curriculum reforms, there's a focus on excellence and kind of the mentality that we see working in the most successful charter schools, I would argue, is also present in the district. That's fine. I agree. And in fact, fact, DCPS probably never would have embraced reform if charters weren't taking away many of their Mm -hmm. students. And they've learned a ton from the charter sector. There's a lot of collaboration. Um, so I think the charter sector yeah. has something to do with DCPS's well, success. And, and, and no argument there. I mean, look, we mm-hmm. are way better off because half the kids in this city are in charter schools. And by the mm-hmm. way, they're in high quality charter yep. schools. Okay. The question is, you know, if let's say, David, that you were now uh, hired to be the superintendent of schools in a city that hasn't had much improvement on the district side. And there are many. Our hometown of Dayton, Ohio, for example, Hasn't. or uh, Kansas City or St. Louis or so many others. Uh, and, and what you would do, it sounds like, is try to find a way over time to make those schools more charter-like. My worry is uh, that you could be missing some reforms that really have helped in a place like D.C. Let, let's get specific. Teaching and learning, right? You're not an education person, David, understand. You're not a curriculum person, but there's a lot of people in education, including many colleagues of ours who are mm-hmm. passionate about curriculum, curriculum and instruction. Nerds, you can call them. Yeah. And they say, look, that's what matters. And if you have some process where you just empower a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing, uh, who don't understand the curriculum, who don't know teaching and learning, you know, you're going to lose a generation of kids while they're bumbling around trying to do this versus saying, hey, In D.C., they had this great response to Common Core. They built a world-class curriculum. They made sure it was aligned. They made it better over time. Same thing with teacher evaluation. They just worked at it, worked at it, worked at it. And now, you know, they may not have the same eye-popping results as some of the best charter schools in D.C., but they also don't have any school where the curriculum and the teaching and learning is abysmal. It's, It's got a level of quality that is consistent, that would be, uh, you know, any city in America would be better off with that kind of public school system. Two points. First, um, the world's best curriculum doesn't do you a lot of good when kids are changing schools and they're three, four years behind grade level. Yeah. All of those schools we talked about in Ward 7 and Mm 8, you think those kids are at grade level getting that curriculum? No. What charters do is meet kids where they are. Right. And they build that motivation that the kids need if they're going to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can handcraft. When you've got kids who, who don't succeed in your typical school with your wonderful curriculum, mm-hmm. you've got to handcraft something for them. And that's and charter schools do that. Mm-hmm. And they do it over mm-hmm. time. Some do, Second, some don't. Okay. Right, yeah. right. Second point, you've got to have a strong authorizer who is careful about who gets a charter. You don't yeah. just mm-hmm. empower anybody. Right. And who weeds out the failures and helps the successes replicate so that you get groups like KIPP who know curriculum and do it well, expanding because they're succeeding. Yep. All right. Well, last question, David. Mm -hmm. Do you think right now it's about 50-50 in the District of Columbia, right? Are we better off keeping it roughly in that balance? Okay. Keep improving the traditional public school system the way they're doing it. Keep uh, allowing charter schools to flourish. But, you know open new schools, but close the low-performing ones. Is that about what we should do? Or do you think we'd be better off in this city uh, moving to a place where the charter sector continues to grow and eventually D.C. public schools goes out of business? If, if you had to choose between those two options. Well, that's a pretty draconian choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Which child do you like that's more, That's what we're Mike. talking about. I, right? choose. I mean, that's largely what we're talking about. No, I mean, there's a third path. There's okay. a third path. So um, what I think what DCPS should do 
is treat more of those schools in Ward 7 and 8 mm-hmm. that are failing yeah. like charters okay. mm-hmm. and contract with strong charter operators to run those schools right. on a five-year performance contract. Let's call them renaissance schools or innovation schools mm-hmm. like other cities do. Mm-hmm. They don't have to call them charters, but let's mm-hmm. do what has worked for those kids. Yep. And in that way, the district would begin to change yep. and maybe not shrink so much. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. I like it. It's, I a, like third, it. it's a third path. Okay. A third path. Uh, I like it. And look, to, to be clear, I think uh, I think it's a fair question. It could be that in most cities, because of the dysfunctional school system, because of teacher union contracts, because of all those sorts of things, your approach makes more sense mm-hmm. uh, You know, to free people up. It just could be that there's a few examples out there. Maybe DC public schools is one uh, when there is a different pathway uh, that can work. And and my own view is, hey, mm-hmm. let's be open to anything that's that's getting results. Well, yeah, and, let's, and DCPS is, is, is getting results. Let's yeah. be agnostic about school type governance. Yeah. Yeah. And let's, let's expand the good schools and close down, replace the, the failure schools all right. amen okay good again david osborne new book is reinventing america's schools you can find it everywhere david thanks so much for being on the show oh thank you it's been great to be here and now it's time for everyone's favorite amber's research minute Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Just had a good conversation about charter schools with David Osborne. I think he was a little surprised that I was so uh, pro-DCPS. What he doesn't know is that Michelle Lerner has been lobbying me from behind the scenes. (laughs) Our former former Alyssa, who is now at DC Public Schools. No, we're not cutting that. We're not cutting that, Andrew. Don't cut that. Everybody knows that. That's an open secret. We are being paid to endorse DCPS. No, is this what no, no, hey. no money has exchanged. She's just, you know, persuasive. Right. That's all. Persuasive. There's right. a new study out that's very impressive about DCPS's gains. Uh, I mean, I know. Then they just had some park gains uh, over and above yeah, the charter school gains. What they claim. So that's good what they claim. for them. Look, it could mean that this has no application anywhere else in the city. I mean, in the country, because mm-hmm. DCPS spends a ridiculous amount yes. of money by thirty thousand dollars a year by some accounts. You know, the whole capital city thing means its governance is strange. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a school board. I mean, so anyways, yes. I, I just like to give David a hard time. I <laughs> uh, uh, like to give most people a hard time. I do. To be clear. Not to mention yes. Amber, who's on a charter school but board. I that am needs to need to improve. Improve. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we're getting there. We're trying. Okay. All right. So what you got for us this All week? All right. We have a cool study. And I have not seen this study in the news anywhere. You guys are on Twitter. I guess you'll tell me what I'm wrong, what I'm wrong about that. Ed Researcher, it examines how racial differences play out and whether students are being identified as having special needs. So conventional mm. wisdom, right? And weak research, more about that in a minute, uh, holds that minority children are over-identified as having disabilities. We think that, right? right. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, researchers analyze data from the most recent NAEP results. That's the nationally representative, of course. They look at reading assessment at grades 4, 8, and 12. They look at individual student-level data, um, which included whether students were identified as having a disability, and if so, what type. Mm-hmm. Importantly, they control for individual-level activities academic achievement using NAEP scores on reading achievement, and then they look at math achievement as a Mm cross-check to see if it looks the same. Um, Unlike previous studies, and this is the important factoid on the methodology, they were mostly descriptive, but this study controls for school-level factors comparing the likelihood of being identified for special needs among children within the same schools Hmm. 
as well as those sharing similar levels of academic performance and matched on gender, poverty status, and ELL status. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. They find that at all three grade levels, racial and minority children, the ethnic, I think I'm just going to call them minority children, yep. okay? Yep. Were consistently less likely than similar white children to be identified as having disabilities. Less likely. In all categories. In all categories. That is interesting. This under-identification occurred at the elementary level, middle school level, high school level, and across specific Mm. disability conditions, so types Mm -hmm. of disability. Moreover, children who are female, low-income, or ELL are less likely to be identified as special needs Mm -hmm. or with a specific learning mm-hmm. SLDs. SLDs. Uh, the same under-identification patterns played out whether controlling for math or reading. I said they looked at both. Mm-hmm. Achievement. Patterns also play out similarly across the achievement deciles with gender, mm-hmm. where repeatedly analysts saw that white male identification rates were often two or three times as high mm-hmm. as rates for similarly achieving black males at different points on the achievement distribution. So they looked at mm-hmm. every decile mm-hmm. and the same pattern mm-hmm. was playing out. Finally, they look at whether these differences hold across time periods using NAEP data from 2003 onward. So they go back into the archives. They use similar controls that they used with the current study. They find the same pattern. And they say, quote, minority children have been less likely than similarly achieving white children to receive special education services in in the United States, at least from 2003. It's a long pattern. And then we get a little history lesson, and I'll wrap up soon. Um, Apparently in 1997, the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitative Services initiated some push to address this overrepresentation of minorities in special education that now apparently looks like it never existed. Um, They base these efforts on descriptive research. This is going to remind you of something, Mike. That showed, for instance, that black children comprised 21% and 16% of the special education and general education population, respectively. Mm. So that's mm. kind of their rationale for, <laughs> we got to address this. Right. Um, quote, and wow, this is such a, this is such a strong quote. The evidence of racial disproportionality uncorrected for confounding variables appears to have led to the widespread mistaken conclusion that minority children were unambiguously being over-identified as disabled Mm -hmm. based on their race or ethnicity, which was quickly but inaccurately taken as evidence for widespread use by U.S. schools of racially discriminatory eligibility procedures. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Wow. This is huge. It's huge. I've not seen it in the news. All right. So, let's dig in on the two most uh, sort of controversial categories here, right? Which, uh, I don't know if you, whatever used to be called mental retardation. I think there's a new, do we know what the term is now? Depends. Severe and cognitively disabled. And, uh, which forever, there has been allegations that a lot of African-American boys were way Mm -hmm. more put Mm -hmm. into that category. Or ED, emotional emotionally disturbed. Disturbances. I think so. Uh, same thing that there was, you know, this you had kids who were acting up in class and you put them this label on them. Mm-hmm. So you're saying there like even for those labels, you might find racial disproportionality, but what these researchers are saying is that there's you can explain it uh, when you dig in and you look at things like academic achievement. achievement. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I mean, basically that's what the prior studies didn't do. Right. They didn't have the controls. Right. And, and you might expect that given, uh, you know, our historic and awful uh, history of, of, you know, racial discrimination, sure. of lead poisoning mm-hmm. that's right. disparate, that all kinds of things that's that right. this might end up. And that's what they're the saying, that, wow. that basically they had this whole big push based on some, you know, weak evidence. Um, and wow. what do they say to do now? I mean, because they're saying this is a big deal to try to reverse, right? Um, that this is happening. Um, 
I mean, one thing, right, is universal screening, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. which we've had a couple of studies that show, you know, maybe this could reduce minority under-identification when it comes to gifted <laughs> services. Um, they also said, and this was kind of ironic, provide evidence-based information about disability risk factors and indicators. I'm like, well, better evidence than what we had here, obviously. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, this is like a big deal. Why haven't I seen this in EdWeek or anywhere mm-hmm. else? Uh-huh. Um, you know, this it's is- like completely overturning conventional wisdom of kind of how we think mm-hmm. about what's happening here. And sorry, you might have, I was actually Googling to remember this specific term from teaching, um, but is this IEPs and 504 plans or? Uh, I just saw IEPs. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's how they basically, because wow. they get accommodations on NAEP, mm-hmm. right? If they have, if they've been, um, you know, if they have an IEP. So, um, yeah, I mean, just to see the pattern played out again, 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 relative to, you know, grade level, relative to decile, relative to disability, mm-hmm. type of disability, um, it was a pretty strong pattern. So, yeah, and be able to be able to have the controls that they did that prior studies didn't um, mm-hmm. is, is a big deal. I do think the idea of having some sort of universal screening would be interesting because speaking from like my own personal experience, my family, and then also just teaching in a high poverty, high minority student population school is if you don't have a family member who's really up there advocating for an IEP to have a student tested to have the IEP adhered to in a really mm-hmm. specific way, which takes a lot of parental um, just social capital and capacity and the ability to take off work maybe to go to an IEP meeting and the language access issues, it's really challenging to get a student identified and then have their services and their needs met by a services. So I think that might be something coming into yeah. the study yeah. as well. But I mean, I feel like we're overcorrecting because of a, 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 a sorted history, like yeah. you're saying, right, yeah. Mike? I mean, yeah. we're kind of, it seems like educators are sensitive to this. I mean, yeah. I'm sure it's well-meaning, right? Um, but, you know, and you've got evidence like this that, you know, I just don't think it's real hard to get this down to the school level, right? Yeah, yeah, to say yeah. like, you know, just be real careful, right, yeah. about how you're identifying these kids or and, not. And, right, mm-hmm. and that we don't want to over-identify, but we don't want to under-identify. Mm-hmm. Because right. these kids get services that could help yeah. them. Yeah. Wow. All right. Thank you, Amber. Super important yes. stuff. And yes, we got to figure out a way to get uh, get folks to understand this mm-hmm. far and wide. All right. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm Melissa Schwenk. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.